And this is Conversational Commerce, the podcast where we break down the biggest industry news and trends by talking shop with the Retail Dive team, thought leaders, and executives. So about a year ago, I called up Doug Stevens. He's the founder and CEO of Retail Profit and a self-described retail futurist. In essence, that all means that he spends a lot of time thinking about where the industry is heading. Last year, he joined me on the show to pitch 10 big predictions for 2018, given the emerging and solidifying trends. Now, we're revisiting those thoughts to see how he did and to talk through what really panned out for M&A, bankruptcies, e-commerce, and a whole lot more. All right, let's dive in. Good to have you back on the podcast. Where are you calling in from today? I'm in our offices in Toronto today. Great. Well, glad to have you on. Um, and before we head straight into our predictions, um, revisiting our, our podcast that we had last year, um, I'm curious, you know, how you're feeling overall about this year in retail and what you expected in January and now what's happened out now that it's we're into December. I think it was an, a, a challenging year uh, for many. Uh, in the in the retail industry, uh, and and yet I also think that it was an important year for a lot of brands and retailers in terms of kind of turning the corner in in terms of kind of getting their arms around some of the more significant changes that are taking place in terms of the things that we did talk about last year, both the nature of the customer, uh, sort of the economics of retail, the technologies involved. You know, I think we have a long, long way to go in the industry yet, but but I do think that it was it was good from that standpoint. The, I will say the one thing that really kind of worries me right now, though, is that you know the retail industry experienced a bit of a pop this year, and and some of that I think is just due to consumer sentiment. Um, some of that might be attributed to the Trump bump in terms of the the tax cuts, but but generally speaking, I think that consumers are feeling in an okay place right now, and and some of that is being reflected in terms of traffic in stores. What I'm seeing though, and and what is kind of concerning is that the industry is sort of breathing this sigh of relief, and I I think that um, that that could potentially come back to haunt a lot of brands. Um, I don't think that we've. I don't think we're nearly out of the woods yet. Yeah, some highs and lows. And certainly I think a lot of people right now are feeling like they're on a high with the holiday season, really booming, consumers turning out, spending more money. Um, but I guess we'll see how that plays out with with Q4 rolling around in the new year and what people are investing in next year, which um, we'll get to next time. Mm-hmm. So I want to run through these 10 big predictions that you gave last year. Um, And honestly, I think you did pretty well. A lot of the predictions you made, obviously, these trends are ongoing and they'll continue to evolve over the next couple of years. But I want to go point by point and just see, you know, how things really shook out. So let's just dive right into it. The first prediction that we talked about was had to do with in-store innovation. And of of course, we've seen a lot of examples of that this year. Uh, The main one that you touched on was Amazon Go. And what you said was that it would recalibrate consumer expectations. Amazon could have a 10-year head start on everyone else. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, certainly it came out in September. Amazon you know, might be plotting up to 3,000 of these kinds of stores over the next three years. That was a little unsettling for some people. We did see a little bit of reaction from that. We did see other companies like Standard Cognition make some similar promises as well for other retailers. So what did you think about Amazon Go's development over the year? I think the first thing is I, I think that there is anticipation in the market that uh, that this kind of technology 
will indeed change consumer expectations in the same sense that, and I think we talked about this last year, in the same sense that Amazon's innovations in terms of one-click checkout completely changed consumer expectations of the experience that they have when they're buying things online. And the rest of the industry had to kind of uh, rush to to catch up. The same thing is is certainly applicable here. And as you point out, um, you know, whether it's standard cognition or whether it's, you know, Microsoft sort of coming to the rescue of retailers at large and saying, hey, it's okay, we, we, we're on to something in this, uh, in this field as well, and we may have an alternative to Amazon Go. Certainly, the industry is on high alert. What I, what I found interesting just very recently was Amazon saying that uh, they are now already looking at scaling this up in terms of the size of store that they could potentially apply this to, which is, it's so patently Amazon, you know, they, they release the Amazon go technology and, and the critics in the industry sort of say, well, that's fine. It, you know, but it's a very, very small store and they'll never scale it up. So it's like Amazon just, yeah, Amazon just hears this and goes, you know, hold my beer. And, uh, you know, the next thing, you know, they'll be applying this technology to a whole whole food store. You know, if they haven't learned already to take Amazon innovations very, very seriously, I'm sure they, you know, this, this might be that, that wake up call. Yeah. Um, I want to move on to malls, which as we know, malls have been transforming and a lot of them falling over the last, um, you know, decade even. Um, but the thing that you said last year was that, you know, malls aren't shopping centers anymore. They're no longer that first starting point for shoppers. You said that we're going to see high malls continue to thrive. And with that, you know, the advent of more food, entertainment, hospitality, and overall less retail. Do you think that panned out? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, where we're seeing significant investment now in call them lifestyle centers. I hesitate to even call them shopping centers, but where we're where we're seeing significant investment is in centers that are uh, very clearly mixed use. They are food and entertainment uh, hubs, uh, and and shopping is maybe somewhere between 20 and 30% of that experience now, but it's certainly not the 70% that it used to be, you know, if we were talking about regional malls. So yeah, I, I think that where the money is going now is certainly not into the old conventional shopping center format, but into these lifestyle hubs, which are really little cities within the city. Um, and that's an interesting segue into um, the next one, which looked at distressed retail, bankruptcy, and you know the major thing to point out there is the struggle of department stores. Um, and we've seen that in the U.S., of course, with Macy's shuttering a lot of stores, Sears ultimately going bankrupt, which um, you had teed off as a prediction, which you know a lot of um, folks watching the retail space had been thinking would happen for a long time. That finally came to fruition in October. But I think what's interesting there is to look at, you know, Macy's and Kohl's were two companies that you had pointed out would also continue to struggle. One that I wanted to ask about was you had called the Kohl's partnership with Amazon the worst retail strategy of all time, or perhaps Amazon prepping to buy Kohl's. You know, as the companies come out and said, you know, we've seen some good results from having Amazon returns. Are you buying that? No, not really. A couple things. Let, let, let me just, um, I'll back up on Macy's for a second. What was interesting to me about Macy's, and, and you're, you're quite right, I, I predicted that Macy's was going to continue to have problems. Interestingly, in my last book, Reengineering Retail, which came out the same year you and I talked, I actually laid out a case in the book 
a financial case for how a brand like Macy's, how a department store like Macy's could potentially employ a retail as media model, which you and I have talked about before as well. This notion that, hey, maybe it's not about selling products, but maybe maybe it's about capturing consumer impressions around uh, around brands and actually monetizing those impressions and charging brands for access to that audience, right? Fundamentally, that's the whole concept of media is that it works wherever you have audiences gathered. So I laid out a financial case for that. Interestingly, after you and I spoke on the podcast in January, I was contacted by the board of Macy's. They asked me to sort of come in and, and explain myself, went in, spoke to their board and their executives and um, kind of reiterated and laid out the case once again. Um, and, and, and I was thinking specifically at the time of Story, you know, and Rachel Sheckman's work at Story in New York. Interestingly, it was... I guess a few months after that, and I'm not suggesting that the two are, are necessarily strictly cause and effect. I think this was on their minds for some time. Maybe they were just clarifying their thinking, but they, they acquired story and, uh, and Rachel Sheckman in the process. So, so Rachel now, um, is, is, uh, doing very good work as their, uh, chief experience officer for Macy's. And they also made some other very interesting moves, their investment in beta, uh, the Palo Alto-based startup that is sort of monetizing the data around consumer interactions with products. I was really encouraged in meeting Jeff uh, Jeanette at uh, Macy's. This is this is a guy that um, he's willing to sort of you know move into the fog of the future and and try things, uh, some pretty daring things. So they um, fortunately have have done better. They, they've seen their fortunes turn somewhat in 2018. And, you know, we did end up naming Jeff Gannett, um, CEO of Macy's, as our executive of the year because of his work that he did transforming Macy's, because I think at the start of the year, as you were saying, expectations were very quite low. Absolutely. And I think what, what Jeff has recognized, what Macy's has is they have space and they have audience, they have traffic. And both of those things have a value right? Especially to brands that don't have the advantage of, of either of those things. Kohl's, on the other hand, I don't know. I, d I just don't know how much of, of what I'm seeing I can actually believe. And whenever I hear a CEO come out and say, we're trying to poach millennials, and, th and that's what a lot of what Kohl's has been saying lately, um, you know, I, I think it's just a, it, it shows a, um, a fundamental disconnect um, that, you know, customers don't like to be poached or wooed or, you know, chased. You know, I think that we just want to be, we want to be treated like customers. We want to be given great experiences. And, and so, um, yeah, Kohl's I'm wary about, and it wouldn't surprise me if we started to hear some some disconcerting news about Kohl's in 2019. I want to move on to brands and vertical integration. And the thing that you had said last year when we talked was that brands don't need retailers anymore to scale. And I think that's interesting because I think we certainly saw uh, a rise in a lot of these digitally native, vertically integrated brands, um, but we also saw a lot of them partnering with big box retailers too. So how did you see this play out from your perspective? I think this happened early 2018, in fact, Mark Parker's announcement at Nike that Nike was essentially uh, saying adios to 30,000 retail partners worldwide. But, you know, kudos to Mark Parker basically recognizing that Nike's brand equity was, was just getting wasted 
worldwide through much of their distribution, and that if they were ever going to pump equity back into the brand, they would have to take more direct responsibility in their relationship with consumers in the marketplace. And so that was the announcement. You know, we've got 30,000 retail partners worldwide. We're going to be investing in 40. And as for the rest of you, thanks very much for coming out, but we're going to be making investments in our owned owned store strategy and our online strategy direct to consumer. Consequently, we saw Nike unveil some pretty cool concepts uh, through the year as well, not the least of which was Nike by Melrose in LA. So yeah, no, I, I'm still a bit, big believer in the fact that, you know, 20, 30 years ago, brands didn't go direct because it just wasn't practical. Today, it's possible and practical. And not only that, there's also evidence that brands, when they sell direct to consumer, sell 86% more. So that's not a bad incentive either. My counter question, I guess, on Nike would be, you know, if they move out of some of the wholesale partnerships, they've also moved on to Amazon, which, of course, they're, they're, they are going direct, but they're going through this other channel of Amazon. Yeah, and, and that's, not, that's not something that I advocate. Uh, I've been asked that question directly by more than one brand. Should we be selling on Amazon? And my answer is, sure, uh, but do so with your eyes wide open because Amazon does not have your best interests at heart. Uh, in, in my opinion, uh, I think Amazon is entreating brands to come onto their platform under the guise of having this wonderful panacea, you know, this direct relationship with consumers. But we, we all know that in the background, Amazon is trademarking brand names across categories and they're launching products in direct competition with their own brand partners. Yeah. Well, let's move on to e-commerce. Um, you had said in this kind of next iteration of online digital selling, it'd be even more connected, more immersive, and a lot more integration with AR and VR. So finding that sense of discovery online seemed to be the challenge that you were still pointing to. Um, what did you see and how did you find that play out with retailers this year? So I've seen a few things. Um, you know, I've seen more and more retailers sort of uh, now experimenting in a meaningful way with uh, augmented reality technology, um, virtual stores. Um, and, and one particular mashup that I thought was pretty cool was um, Magic Leap uh, in 2018 released its developer product to the market. To mixed reviews, there were those that thought, you know, given the fact that this is a $2.3 billion startup, <laughs> which Remind is- Remind us who Magic Leap is. Yeah, so so Magic Leap is a, is a mixed reality startup uh, and mixed reality being a technology that actually projects images into your eyes using light field technology, and then it leaves it to your brain to sort of sort out what's real and what's digital. Mm -hmm. They launched a- uh, an initiative with Wayfair, whereby using the Magic Leap device, which is essentially a visor and a small uh, hip pack, kind of a processor that you wear on your hip, uh, allowed consumers to essentially look at various room sets in um, using mixed reality and then pull items out of these room sets and actually place them in their room at scale. To me, this was sort of a glimpse of the future you know, and, and, and again, I mean, if we're, if we were talking about air travel, uh, as it pertains to, uh, you know, augmented reality, mixed reality, virtual reality, this is like the Wright brothers at Kitty Hawk, what we're watching right now. These are extremely early days in this technology and already 
um, it, it's pretty compelling for the imagination to see what what these companies are doing. So yeah, I, I think that we've definitely made moves in that direction. Yeah. And then so to move on to mobile and voice, um, you had really pointed to Alexa. And of course, Amazon wants Alexa to be your everything. It's that ecosystem that keeps consumers there and caters to them with this kind of, you know, assistant for everything you could ever want. Um, so how did you see the the growth of voice and Alexa in particular this year? So I think what, what we all realized and what Amazon certainly realized is that voice is uh, certainly a platform for engagement. Uh, there's no question um, that people, people are using Alexa, uh, but the problem is they're not using it for shopping. Um, the penetration of that device is is pretty remarkable, but when I get down to how many of you use it for shopping, it's a fraction of the people that actually have one. So as a consequence, you've seen Amazon move towards a, a voice-activated device that also includes a screen, which, which seems like a sensible move. So I, I do believe that the notion of this ever-present digital assistant in our lives is going to be a reality. I, I certainly believe that. Whether it's Alexa or some other platform or technology, whether it's uh, Cortana or Siri or you know whomever, uh, Google Assistant, I believe that that is going to be the case. We, res- we are responding favorably to that aspect of this technology. Uh, how we actually bridge the the gap over to using it as a shopping tool that that remains to be seen. And, you know, interestingly enough, um, as much hype as there is about that technology, that wasn't the technology that you had named as kind of the prediction for what retailers were going to focus most on. Um, You had said, you know, this is more the unsexy side of it, but retailers using technology to quantify the consumer experience in store and really work on what's the attribution of where that sale took place. Mm -hmm. So are retailers succeeding with this kind of technology? I'm talking with really significant number of brands and retailers that are now wading into this. Look at it this way. Most of them acknowledge that up until this point, all they've really known about the customer journey in their stores is they've known roughly how many people have crossed the threshold of their stores. And they've known, obviously, how many people bought something. And they recognize now that I think there's a growing recognition that there is a value to that journey itself, that it's not simply about conversion anymore. It's not just about how many people came in, how many people bought something, but it's really about how many people came in, how many of those people were unique versus um, repeat visitors, where did they go, how long did they stay? I think there's a growing acceptance of the fact that dwell time and uh, you know the, the the length of time a consumer is actually engaged in your store experience has a, a positive effect, uh, whether it's today in the form of a sale or whether it's in lifetime value of the customer. Yeah. Um, and to move on to disruptors, there wasn't one that you specifically named as someone to, to totally watch, but you talked a lot about the impact of the sharing economy and how consumers are constantly being changed by things like Uber and Airbnb. You know, how did you look at disruptors and the sharing economy and how that's changed consumer expectations this year? You know, we, we tend to call out companies like Amazon and you know, we tend to really focus very myopically on on everything that Amazon does. 
But I think consumer behavior, generally speaking, is being changed by everything that we experience, you know, and whether that's, you know, using an app uh, for a limo ride or whether it's booking uh, a night stay in an Airbnb um, or, you know, using mixed reality uh, to shop on Wayfair, all of these experiences change our expectations. I sort of feel, I guess, Corinne, that a lot of the things we were talking about in 20, I'll say 2014, 15, 16, and maybe 17, we were, we were still very much, I think, on the hype curve for a lot of, a lot of things, you know, whether it was sharing economy or AI, machine learning, um, internet of things. I think we were still sort of very much in, in the fascination stage with a lot of those platforms and technologies. The question now is, about application. How, how do I actually make this work for my brand? And, and now we're, I think we're, we're at the point where we're starting to see some meaningful experimentation by brands ac- across all of these various platforms and technologies. Yeah. The next um, that I want to jump into was mergers and acquisitions. And you made two distinct predictions. The first was that Amazon would look more into the furniture market um, and that an acquisition like Restoration Hardware might make a lot of sense, you know, looking at their showrooms, their price point, things like that. We didn't see that happen, but we did see Amazon get into the mattress space, launched a new Amazon Basics private label in October. Did you have any other comments on, you know, what you saw or and or expected from you know, Amazon and their acquisitions this year. Just that I was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but, but let me qualify though. Um, yeah. I, I mean, the reason I thought, I thought restoration hardware would be a good fit was because if you look at whole, the whole foods fit with Amazon and you, you look at the, the whole foods customer and how they align to the Amazon prime member, uh, 82% of households in the U.S. with incomes over $110,000 a year are Prime members. Uh, when you sort of pair that up with who, who's the Whole Foods customer, you see massive overlap in terms of these two audiences. And, and for that reason, I thought if Amazon is truly intent on getting into furniture, who are they going to go for? Is it going to be like, are they going to go for an Ashley or are they more likely to go for a higher end brand? And so I thought there was probably more of a uh, more synergy with the, with the restoration hardware. Clearly, they didn't move on that. Uh, the other one I think I talked about was uh, Walmart buying Wayfair. Yes, um, which which I still believe could happen. Um, maybe not maybe not before January first, but <laughs> um, but but I think part of the part of what prevented anyone from moving on Wayfair this year was that the uh, the valuation was just completely out of line with their uh, with their performance. Yeah. And, you know, not to say that Walmart was quiet this year. They certainly were not. And they did move into the home space. They launched All's Well in February. That's their design-centric home brand, also focuses on mattress. They also bought Art.com recently, which was a move at, you know, grabbing $10 billion wall decor market, also focusing in on home. So those all seem to kind of complement that space. And it looks like there could still be room for, you know, strict furniture digital brand there. Well, this is the thing. And when you look at, you know, what, what I think it's important for people to realize is that we really and truly are at the end of the beginning of e-commerce. You know, people still point to e-commerce numbers and, the, you know, they, they try desperately to sort of, you know, minimize the impact of e-commerce and point out that, hey, you know, it's still only whatever, 10% of, of total retail. 
but you know, as Benedict Evans said recently, I, I, he's um, with Andreessen Horowitz, and, and I was watching him present, and he he said, and he made a good point. You know, he said, what what e-commerce has tackled so far is the easy stuff. It's it's all the digital stuff. It's the tickets. It's the um, you know plane rides and that sort of thing. Limo pickups, all the easy stuff. Now we're going to move into the more difficult things. Now it is going to be about furniture and banking and healthcare and you know buying houses online and all, all that stuff. We we are going to see an explosion in the e e economy um, that that seemed unimaginable only a few years ago. But as companies now start to take on the tough stuff, uh, that's where we're going to see these massive gains. And then the last one to come to is looking at evolving economic models. And, you know, you mentioned that we're going to start seeing more retailers, you know, charging admission to stores or events or exhibits, movies, and much more experiential retail. So how did you see um, new or interesting economic models play out? So, uh, yeah, I, I think that I think that we could we can safely put that one in, in the win column as much as I hate to kind of keep score. But um, <laughs> but but I, yeah, I, th- I think so. Um, uh, again, if I go back to beta, they've been opening stores like crazy this year. Um, yeah. th- they've seen great investment. They've been partnering with companies like Lowe's. Um, opening these these showrooms and, um, and and doing very well. Uh, the acquisition again by Macy's of Story, I think, is an affirmation that there is something there. And then most recently, uh, something I was really encouraged by is the opening in Plano, Texas, of all places, of neighborhood goods. Yeah, which, let's talk about that. Yeah, so neighborhood goods, fourteen thousand square feet, twenty two brands. Doesn't really care if they sell anything. They don't care. They're they're basically a show a showroom for emerging brands, some established brands, but a lot of emerging grassroots brands that are looking for quote retail as a service end quote. They're looking for um, someone like Neighborhood Goods who has a beautiful space, hosts community events, builds awesome online content around their brand, and also provides staffing and merchandising. And they charge the brands up front. Their whole reason for being is to provide retail as a service and retail as media. And they measure all those interactions taking place in their space. And then they, they feed that information back to brands. So in absolute terms, that is probably the closest to this whole notion of the retail media model. Uh, that Matt Alexander and his team at Neighborhood Goods have, uh, have put together. Yeah. And I think there's been a lot of hype around this kind of concept and a lot of questions of, could this completely disrupt the department store model? Will this replace it? I wonder you know, how you look at the scalability of something like this. Well, I just, I just finished a podcast actually with Matt that's going to be coming out shortly. And I asked him that exact question. I said, so you know, could you ever see this kind of model uh, being implemented in a, in, you know, a full uh, department store, like take a Macy's, for example. And he sa- and his response was, he said, I'm not sure you really need a 200,000 square foot store anymore. Huh. You know, and it's kind of, you know, when you think about it, it's true. Like the reason that a Macy's or a JCPenney or Sears, the reason they're so big is because they were built for an era where there was no internet. You know, sure. you had to have that much space because you had to merchandise that many products or warehouse that many products. So um, I think it's a good point. You know, is the department store of a future really like 
Macy's with a different economic model, or does it look more like a 20,000 square foot store um, that, that simply doesn't need that, that level of inventory or space? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And um, I'm sure it'll land um, somewhere in the middle between the two. But, um, you know, certainly, as you mentioned, like malls will continue to evolve. And um, I imagine we'll start seeing more concepts like this crop up. We just don't need stores anymore to distribute products. So I I just fundamentally believe that we're going to see the distribution aspect of retail go online. And we're going to see the media aspect of, of online and conventional media go into physical stores. Well, that sounds like a pretty good wrap of how retail changed throughout the year and how we're going to continue to see it change next year, given changing landscape of physical, digital, e-com, and new players too. So thanks so much, Doug. And I think that's a wrap for 2018. It's always a pleasure. for tuning in to this episode of Conversational Commerce. For all the latest news and trends, subscribe to our free daily newsletter at retaildive.com. And stay tuned for more episodes. Next up, I'll be back with Doug to talk about the year ahead. This time, he's got eight big predictions that you won't want to miss. And then I'll be taking the podcast on the road up to New York City for NRF's annual big show, where we will be recording several live shows. If you'll be there too, let us know and come by the podcasting booth. You can tweet at us at Retail Dive and at Combo Commerce for all the details. Hope to see you there. I'm Corinne Ruff, and this was Conversational Commerce.